Well, today we're going to be talking a little bit about who determines the meaning of a text. So in case you're just now joining us or something, we are in a little series on how to interpret the Bible. The fancy theological term you can use to impress your friends is hermeneutics. The Greek word hermeneuo means to interpret, and so uh, we're, we're talking about hermeneutics and how to interpret the Bible. Next, in, in the following semesters, we're going to be getting more into the Bible, but today we're going to be talking more about what we do when we open the Bible and how to interpret the Bible. And uh, two weeks ago, Jeff talked about, we're, we're trying to give you some tips each time we meet on how to best interpret the Bible. So two weeks ago, Jeff started by saying, to understand the Bible and interpret it correctly, you have to understand the whole storyline of Scripture. I think most of us probably grew up not understanding that and just hearing a bunch of random Bible stories, right? So Noah was a story about how God loves animals despite the fact that he kills everybody. We don't tell our kids that part. And King David is a story of how the little guy can beat up the big guy and these kind of things. That's not the point of those stories. And so we have to understand how all those things are pointing to Christ or else the stories don't really make sense. And we really have to understand where we stand uh, in biblical history to make sense of certain commands, I told you when I, uh, even before I was a Christian, I tried to read part of the Bible and I got to like Leviticus and I'm like, man, look at all these rules we're breaking, right? If you don't understand Christ has fulfilled the Mosaic law, that's really going to stress you out. And so we said the first thing you need to know to correctly interpret the Bible is you need to know the overarching storyline of scripture. And we said that was uh, the kingdom of God, that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, God reestablishes his kingdom and he's getting the world back to Eden. Last week, we talked about something called, who remembers what we talked about last week? Presuppositions. You weren't even here, but you know. Well done. Okay, so presuppositions is what we talked about last week. Presuppositions are these things you suppose pre. They're things you assume beforehand when you go to a text. And the big illustration we used is I had Malachi come up here and I said, draw on the board what I say, no more and no less, just what I say. And I said, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. And so he drew a wall and he drew Humpty Dumpty as an egg. And I asked him, why did you draw Humpty Dumpty as an egg? I didn't say he's an egg, and neither does the nursery rhyme. It's a lot more violent story than we think. But we just assume that he's an egg, and so that's how he drew it that way. We do the same thing when we come to the Bible. When we come to the Bible, we bring our assumptions. You cannot get rid of your assumptions. You can only be aware of them. So we talked about how one of the biggest ways, and I think the main way that people misinterpret the Bible, is they bring their assumptions to the text and read their assumptions back onto the text, and so we don't actually see what the text is saying. We're meant to look at like a white piece of paper, but we have on rose-colored glasses or green-colored glasses or blue-colored glasses, and it causes us to distort the text. And so today, we're going to answer a question, and the question is, who determines the meaning of a text? Let me say something scandalous. Ready? There is a correct interpretation for every part of the Bible. In God's mind, he did not give his word that we would all get a thousand contradictory interpretations and not know what he wants us to do or believe or say, all right? There's an objective interpretation for every passage in the Bible. If you were to ask God himself, God, what does this mean? He would have an answer for that. And so today, though, we have a billion interpretations for every passage. And so we're going to work through one of the big things you can do in learning how to know that your interpretation is correct, that there is objectivity. So before we get into the author, text, and the reader, and which one determines meaning and how they interact with each other, here's something we need to say about this. When we're looking for who determines the meaning of the text, here is something you have to hold if you're a Christian. Ready? This is basic, but this is not basic in our culture. You have to hold that there's such a thing as absolute truth. You have to hold that there's such a thing as objective truth. To say Jesus is Lord means to say that Jesus is not Lord is false. To say two plus two is four means to say two plus two equals five is false. You have to hold to objective truth. If there's no objective truth, it doesn't matter what we're doing. Eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. 
But if we're going to look for an objective meaning in the text, because God is true and God is objective and God doesn't contradict himself, we have to start by understanding there is such thing as absolute truth, okay? Let me give you a few examples of that and proofs of that. For some of you, this might be review. For some of you, this might be brand new and just blow your mind, all right? So here we go. The thing you need to know about absolute truth is this. When somebody says... I don't believe in absolute truth, which by the way, is huge in our culture. What's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. Who are you to be my judge? Who are you to tell me that your way's better or whatever? To, to do that is to deny absolute truth. But here's the irony in what they're saying. What they're saying is there is no such thing as absolute truth. And then I say this to them, are you sure? Because if you say yes, you've just made an absolute statement. The one absolute truth is that there's no such thing as absolute truth, which is self-contradictory. Or if they say no, then what are they saying? I'm not sure whether or not there's such thing as absolute truth. That's not a very strong claim. So what we're trying to say is when somebody says there's no such thing as truth, they defeat their own position because they are making a truth claim. They're making a truth claim, all right? So number one, the statement itself makes no sense. To say there's no such thing as absolute truth is a statement about absolute truth, okay? Number two, there are certain things that we do know with certainty, that we do know absolutely, Okay, let me give you some examples. Ready? All bachelors are unmarried men. Anybody want to refute that? If you say, uh-uh, I know a bachelor that's married, then you don't understand what the words bachelor or married mean, right? All bachelors are unmarried men is a deductively, logically certain truth, okay? Or here's another one. Two plus two is four. You can say, well, I think it means five, but that doesn't change the meaning of the actual words as we're using them. If I have two sticks and I had two sticks, I've got four sticks, Right? The two plus two is four. There are certain truths, even for someone who doesn't believe in absolute truth, for some reason they still do their balance their bank account, and they still care whether or not they get paid, and they still care about these kind of things. If the doctor tells them they do or don't have cancer, that's a different diagnosis. Additionally, and this goes back to even to St. Augustine, so there's a guy named Rene Descartes who said, I think therefore I am. There's a, there's a guy before him that said something similar, St. Augustine, and what St. Augustine was trying to say is, let me give you an absolute proof that there is absolute truth. Okay, ready? He said, I exist. I exist. Because if you say, I think you're wrong, well, then he still exists because a non-existing thing can't be wrong. Right? His whole point is that there are certain claims that are absolutely true, even apart from a Christian worldview. To say I exist means I'm either right or wrong in that claim. If I'm right, well, then I exist. And if I'm wrong, then I still exist because a non-existing thing can't be wrong. That's what Augustine would say. You don't have to memorize everything I'm saying. I just want you to realize there is such a thing as absolute truth. All bachelors are unmarried men. Two plus two is four. And then there are even ones that are harder to prove but are true. My name is Zach. All right? We're in a building right now. There's a lot of these things. Okay? So the first thing I want you to know is that you do have to hold that there is such a thing as absolute or objective truth before we can interpret the Bible. If you don't hold that, you will never be able to interpret the Bible. Okay? You will get a thousand different interpretations and everyone will think their interpretation is just as good as everybody else's and there's no objectivity there. You have to hold, before we figure out who determines the meaning of the text, you have to hold that there is such a thing as absolute truth, okay? To say it another way, I'll say it strongly as I've heard a professor say it, you don't have a right to your opinion, you only have a right to what you can prove. I think we have, an, we have this idea that everyone's opinions somehow are equal. If I have an opinion that there are 30-foot-tall pink bunnies outside and you have an opinion that that's not the case, our opinions are not equal. They're both opinions. We both have rights to our opinions, but that doesn't mean everybody's opinion is equally as intelligent. Okay? So, yes, we have our opinions, but that doesn't therefore mean that some opinions are not more based on fact than other opinions. Let me give you some good pastoral advice. When somebody says that they don't believe in absolute truth, you punch them in the neck 
and see if they didn't like it. See if they think that's objectively wrong, okay? I'm kidding. Don't do that. Don't do that and be like, Zaxxon, and punch them. Don't do that, all right? But the point is, is that even thieves understand they shouldn't steal from each other and these kind of things. This is ingrained within us. Uh, Carl talked about this in Romans 1, that there's an innate knowledge of God, not only from nature, but that he's put within us with a moral sense, which is why in every culture, though they'll they'll allow killing for some things but not for others, they all agree you can't just go murder whoever you want. And though every culture will have, some cultures will have polygamy and some won't, they all agree that you can't just go have whatever woman you want. And so there's this intrinsic sense of moral value that God's wired humans to have, okay? One more thing. If two people hold contradictory opinions, they can't both be right. They can both be wrong sometimes, but if you and I hold contradictory opinions, either I'm right and you're wrong, You're right and I'm wrong, or we're both wrong, but we can't both be right, okay? We can't both be right. This idea of, well, that's just your interpretation, and let's let's let bygones be got bygones, and let's just agree to disagree, that doesn't work if you're trying to interpret the Bible, because eventually somebody is right and somebody is wrong, or you're both wrong. But it's not this just, we can both be right idea if there's two contradictory things. Does everybody understand what a contradiction is? A contradiction is to both affirm something and deny it at the same time in the same sense. So if I say, here is a chair and here is not a chair, that's a contradiction. Those both can't be true at the same time, okay? So if your interpretations are contradictory, then they can't both be true. They can sometimes both be false, but they can't both be true, okay? There's this idea, and I don't know if you've noticed this. You probably see this online, on social media, in our culture, that people assume that they are experts on everything. I don't, I don't know where that comes from, and, here, and by that I mean I do. It's pride in the human heart. But we assume that we're experts on everything, What makes a celebrity qualified to speak on advanced political issues, all right? What makes a medical doctor able to speak on theological issues? What makes a theologian able to speak on, I don't know, certain economic issues and these kind of things? What you see is that online everybody's an expert, despite the fact that they don't actually have the training within that field to be an expert, and that's a condition of pride, okay? And so we've got to fight that with absolute truth. Everybody with me on absolute truth? Everybody in here, uh, you know, a Christian or want to be a Christian? Because you've got to hold absolute truth. All right? Okay. All right, now let's talk about how to find this absolute truth. So now that we've said, at least in God's mind, there's a correct interpretation of every text, how do we get to that correct interpretation? Okay? There are three things that people debate about, which are the primary, or where the primary meaning is to be found. So here's the question we're trying to answer this morning. Where is the primary meaning of a text meant to be found? Okay? Right, let me say it clearer. Who determines the primary meaning of a text? That's a better way to say it. Who is the primary determiner of meaning in a text? Okay? Is it the author, the one writing the text, the text itself, or the reader, the person reading the text? We're going to look at these in reverse order. Okay? Now, sometimes, by the way, when I say author, text, or reader, this also works for spoken communication. So in any communication, you have these three elements here. So if we're, we're right, let's say we're writing something. There's an author... There's the actual letter. So if I write a love letter to my wife, there's the author, there's the actual letter itself, and then there's the reader of that letter. Everybody with me so far? That's the same if it's spoken, all right? So you can have a speaker, the words that are spoken, and a listener. You see those same three elements? Linguists get fancy terms for these. They call one an encoder. The code is the text, and then the decoder is the reader. Those are the fancy terms. But for the rest of this little lecture, I'm going to use author, text, and reader. But just know what I'm saying applies to uh, whether it's a speaker, whether it's verbal communication, or other forms of communication. I'm just going to use this for what's written because we're talking about the Bible. Does that make sense? Let me step back for a second. Why are we doing this, and why are we getting into this kind of heady philosophical thing? Let me tell you why. 
recently, my wife and I uh, had started going to the gym, and it's not because we were, uh, like, I was already wanting to be in shape or something. I eat terribly, all right? So cereal for me is like Doritos with Dr. Pepper poured on it. That's a bowl of cereal, and so I eat really bad, but I want to see my son get married, and so I thought, you know what? I need to go sweat a little bit and get some of this uh, Doritos out of me. So we joined this gym, and one of the things I've realized at the gym is that people hate working on their weaknesses. They hate working on their weaknesses. They like working on their strengths. So if you, see, you might see a guy who's 600 pounds and way overweight, but guess what he's doing? He's lifting weights. He's just getting even bigger. Why? Because for him, his size gives him more strength, and so he likes the fact that he's strong, so he just keeps working on strength. What does he need to work on? He needs to work on cardio, right? But that's uncomfortable for him, He's not very good at cardio, so he keeps working on lifting weights. Now, conversely, I see the other person at the gym who's like the marathon, super skinny runner, and he can run for like 30 miles straight and all these kind of things, but he can't do a pull-up. Why? Because running is comfortable for him, and he enjoys running, but what he needs to work on is strength. And so what you see is that people don't like working on our weaknesses, myself included, We like working on our strengths. So the reason we're doing hermeneutics, the reason we're getting a little bit philosophical, the reason we're talking about this is because this is not the kind of thing most of us work on throughout the week. We like reading the Bible. We like talking to other people about the Bible. This is the kind of thing most people don't get. And so this is why we're doing this uh, this thing. So if this is a little heady or a little philosophical, uh, that's intentional. We want it to be that. Everybody, is that fair? Does that make sense why we're doing this? Okay. I'm so insecure all the time. Uh, Okay. Now, you have these three components anytime you're reading a text. You have the author, the text, and the reader. And by the way, you have to have all three of these. You have to have all three of these. These work together. So as I, I'm going to make a case this entire time that the author is the primary determiner of meaning. So let me just show my cards up front. But you still have to take these other things into account. You don't have a way to understand the author without the text. You as a reader bring certain presuppositions to the text that you have to be aware of or you'll misinterpret it. So all three of these you need, and all three of these play together. They just don't always play together nicely, okay? So let's go over who determines the primary, who's the primary determiner of meaning, and we're going to do this in reverse order. Let's start with reader, text, and author. There are some people who say the primary determiner of meaning is the reader, okay, is the reader. By the way, this is the most common thing taught in schools and universities today. This is hands down the most common thing. I remember being in high school, and uh, we'd be reading something in English class. Let's say it's Mark Twain, and the teacher would say, what does this mean to you? Oh, gosh, we do that in Bible studies, too, sometimes, which is the worst. We say, what does this mean to you? And a student would raise their hand and say something stupid like, I think Mark Twain is talking about Xbox. Now, how do we know that Mark Twain's not talking about Xbox? It wasn't invented yet, right? We know that's an objectively dumb interpretation. But the teacher would say something like, that's good and right, you're so smart, you're so progressive, you're so enlightened, and these kind of things, because that student brought up this fact that he thought that the text was talking about Xbox or something like that. That's the primary way our kids are being taught to read. That's the primary way a lot of adults read. We're being told, we're the ones that determine the meaning of the text, okay? By the way, if a reader determines the meaning of the text, there's no communication going on because they're talking to themselves, right? If I don't take into account what the author's saying and I just have a text and I just ask, what does it mean to me? Who am I talking to? Not the author. I'm talking just to myself. You have to have all three of these for communication to take place. If I want to communicate, I have a thought in my mind. Listen to how crazy communication is. I have a thought in my mind 
And I want to get you to understand that same thought. So I open this hole in my face and I make sounds and now somehow you have the same thought. That's crazy. But it takes all those elements. It takes that speaker, the speech, and the listener, or it takes the author, the text, and the reader. But one of the main ways that our culture is taught how to read is to say, what does it mean to me? It's called reader response theory, that the reader is the primary determiner of meaning. Okay? Let me tell you a little bit about where that comes from historically. I want to give you an oversimplification of something called postmodernism. It is an oversimplification for time's sake. There are big, three big eras, if you want to think of it, in Christian history when it comes to how we know things. Okay, what's called the pre-modern era, that's before the Enlightenment. The modern era, which starts with guys like Francis Bacon and Rene Descartes. And then the post-modern era, where we live now. Okay? If you were to ask this question, how do we know the highest truths? How do we know the highest truths? What would somebody in the Middle Ages or the early church say? How do we know the highest truths? What do you think? Anybody guess? There is a wrong answer because we're talking about objective truth, so be careful with your guess, all right? Anybody? How would, how would a Christian in the early church or in the medieval church answer the question, how do we know the highest truths? Yeah, so scripture and church through revelation and tradition. If you were to say, how do we know what's good versus bad? How do we know who God is? How do we know what we're supposed to do? Their answer would be through two things, revelation, meaning scripture, and tradition, Fast forward to the modern era, if you were to ask, how do we know the highest truths, the answer changes. The answer is no longer revelation and tradition. It is through science and reason. It is through human human accessible knowledge, if you will. It's through the empirical method. It's through the scientific method. So whereas the previous generations would have said, we understand the highest truths through revelation and tradition, meaning the scriptures and what the church has taught about them, in the modern era, in the Enlightenment, that, that changed. We know the highest truths through human reason and through scientific inquiry. Everybody with me? Now, post-modernism, which is after the modern era, if you were to say, how do we know the highest truths, they would say, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't get to those truths on your own. You're way too biased. So post-modernism is not saying that there is no such thing as absolute truth. What they're saying is that every attempt to claim that you know truth is a power play. It's a chance for you to gain power over other people. So if you as a Christian have the truth and somebody else doesn't, now there's an in-group and an out-group and you now have power over those people. Or if you believe that capitalist theory is correct or Marxist theory is correct, uh, you are now excluding people that don't hold your view. What the postmodernist is saying is that we can't get to that absolute truth because we bring all of our biases and we bring our presuppositions and what we are doing is we are actually trying to gain power over people by making claims to absolute truth. Everybody with me on what they're saying? Now, here's what's really ironic. Guess who then is the broker of truth? They are. Everybody's making a claim for absolute truth. We know that's not true. We postmodernists know that. So now you're the one who's in power who gets to determine who's right and who's wrong. It's this big irony in the postmodern movement. But with that idea, so let me, let me give you an example. Uh, there's a postmodern uh, philosopher named Jacques Derrida. Let me give you an example that he gives. If we talk about the word cat, everybody know what a cat is? Okay, I hope so. If you don't, talk to me after this because we've got a lot to catch up on. Uh, let's say we're talking about the word cat. The word cat is linked to a, I mean, an infinite number of other words. It's linked to the idea of mat, right? Like if Dr. Seuss, cat on a mat or something. It's linked to the idea of house. What is house linked to? House is linked to the idea of parents. 
Your experience with your parents might be different than my experience with my parents. Maybe you had a really good dad that loved you and I had a really mean, abusive dad. And it's the idea of parents are now linked to the idea of men and women. The idea of men and women are now linked to politics. Every one idea is linked to a billion other ideas. And so when I say cat and you say cat, neither of us are talking about an objective cat. We're just talking about all these presuppositions we have. Okay? That's what he would say. That we, we can't get beyond the text. We can't get to the thing itself. So just to, to shorten that down, let's say you've only ever had a good father and I've only ever had an abusive father. When we're both talking about a father, are we talking about the same thing? Okay? He would say no. We would say as Christians, yes, we just have different experiences, but there is actually something that is a father that we would agree with, okay? But that's where this idea comes from, that you can't get to this actual objective meaning. You can only bring your presuppositions to whatever you're studying, okay? Now, here's the biggest... I had a, actually a professor in grad school that was teaching a course, and we were going through Plato's Republic, and he literally said this. He literally said, if we take this literally, here's what Plato means, but I don't like that. So Plato can't be serious here. And I thought, let me make sure I understand, uh, oh, educated professor, what you're saying here. You don't like what this philosopher's saying, so therefore it can't be true. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. So I don't hold that the reader is the primary determiner of meaning. I think the reader has a role in interpreting, and here's our main role as readers, to try to figure out what the author is saying and try to minimize our presuppositions. The reader is not the primary determiner of meaning. Your English teacher was wrong, okay? That's what I'm saying. Write her a letter. And if, guess what? She'll, if she reads it and understands what you're saying, you've proved to her that the author's a determiner of meaning. Okay? So do that. The biggest problem with a reader response theory is no communication can take place. If I, tell, if I write my wife a letter and I say, meet me at the park at 3.30, she can't say, I think he wants me to cheat on him and crash a car or something like that. You can't do that. You have to figure out what the author is trying to say. That's how all communication works, okay? So is the reader involved in interpretation, yes or no? Yes. Is the reader the primary determiner of meaning? No. Boo. Reader response theory. Boo. We don't like it. It's bad. Okay. The reader is not the primary determiner of meaning. The reader's job is to try to figure out what the author is saying and to be aware of their presuppositions. But this is the big thing in our culture. We live in a post-fact society where everyone just takes their opinions and they talk past each other and they just keep yelling with their opinion and no one ever stops back to say, one of us is right and one of us is wrong. Who is it? And how do we know? How can I prove that I'm right and prove that you're wrong? Okay? We also can sometimes slide into this when we say this. I've heard a lot of people say this in churches. Well, people have been debating this for a long time. There's a lot of different interpretations, so we can't really know what's right. No, just because people have been debating whether or not God exists for a really long time. That doesn't mean we can't know whether or not he does or doesn't exist. There's still a right answer just because there's a lot of people that debate. In fact, for every time there's a right answer, guess how many wrong answers there are? A whole lot of others. Everything that's not that right answer. If two plus two is four, guess how many wrong answers there are? An infinite number. Two plus two is five, two plus two is six, two plus two is seven. What if I just did that for the next five minutes to make the point, okay? So just because people have a bunch of different opinions doesn't make one, that doesn't mean therefore there's not one right one. You'll hear this a lot to say, well, there's a bunch of different religions out there, so how do you know yours is right? Well, just because there's a bunch of different religions, that doesn't mean one of them is not right. In fact, if one of them is right, you'd have to have a bunch of other wrong ones if the human heart is depraved and we go after idols and these kind of things. Okay, everybody with me on that? Reader determines the meaning, boo, bad, get it out of here, not Christian, not historical, all right? Look, I'm moving my stand, I've been rebuked for that, let me just try not to touch it so much. The text, number two. So what is the reader's job in interpretation? Two things I said. 
Eliminate? Well, be aware of presuppositions. You can't eliminate them, but yes. And? <laughs> and what else? Try to figure out what the author's saying. That's the job as the reader, okay? Now, the next one is, who is the primary determiner of meaning? The next option that some people say is the text, okay? The next option some people say is the text. So let me be clear on this. We do go to the text to find the meaning, but the reason I'm saying the author's the primary determiner of meaning is because he's the one that decided what text would be there. Does that make sense? So when 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 we say something like, the Bible says, we're not just saying here's some abstract text. We're saying God, who is the author of the Bible, says. Or Paul, with the Spirit, who is the author of the Bible, or these New Testament epistles, says. So I'm not saying that the text is unimportant. This is actually where we find the meaning. We find the meaning in the text, but the primary determiner of meaning is the author who put it there. Is the author who put it there. Okay, let me give you some examples why. Because there are, there, you can be a Christian and hold that the text is the primary determiner of meaning. There's a lot of people who do that. That's fine. But I want to make a case for why I don't think just the text in and of itself is the primary determiner of meaning. Okay? Number one, this is the biggest one. You never have a text without an author. You never have a text without an author, period, ever. You're never just walking through the woods one day, and all of a sudden, there's this whole paragraph that makes sense in English that a human or a God or an angel or something did not put there. Meaning is something intelligent beings do. Meaning is something that an author does. You don't have a text in the real world apart from some type of author. What is a text? A text is just scratches on a stone or scratches on a piece of paper. People endow that with meaning, okay? When I'm writing a letter to my wife, there's not just this objective letter that somehow is just written. I'm trying to communicate things And so what I do is I take what I'm trying to intend and I put it down on the text. She finds the meaning in the text, yes and amen, but when she's reading the text, she's asking, what is Zach saying? What is Zach saying? Let me give you some proofs proofs for why I think the text is not the primary determiner of meaning. If we're reading Romans, who wrote Romans? Paul, okay? If we're reading Romans and we're trying to figure something else out, is it sometimes helpful to go to one of Paul's other letters, like Galatians, to see what he thinks there? Yes or no? Okay, if the text is the primary determiner of meaning, that's not true. If the text has its own meaning apart from the author, then it would make no sense to go to Galatians to figure out what Paul means in Romans. The reason you're going to Galatians is because you're trying to figure out what does Paul mean in this theological literature and how can that play into this piece of theological literature also written by Paul. If you say the text is the primary determiner of meaning, it does you no good to see what Paul says elsewhere. It does you no good to see what God says elsewhere. Right? You just have the text. The text just has the meaning, and that's it. Again, I think you find the meaning in the text, but the primary determiner of meaning is the author. Okay? Um, Let me give you another example for why I don't think that the text is the primary determiner of meaning. If you and I are talking, and I say something that you don't really understand, what do you then say? What do you mean by that? You don't just say, okay, hey, go over on the corner. I've already heard what you said. Now let me just figure it out. You ask me, what do you mean by that in saying what you just said? We already intuitively know the text is the medium. It's the highway between these two people. The author has something he wants to say. He uses the text to say it, and the reader's job is to figure out what the author is saying. Okay? So, again, yes and amen to finding the meaning in the text, but what are you finding when you read the Bible? You're trying to get God's thoughts. 
You're trying to find the author of Scripture, who is God, what he says. You're not just seeing a command not to murder. You're seeing God's command not to murder. You're not just seeing a command not to commit adultery. You're seeing God's command not to commit adultery. You're not just seeing some suggestion on how you might be saved by Christ. You're seeing the fact that Christ did die for us for our salvation, and that's the message God wants to get across to us. So again, all these play together. I'm not saying you can just have an author because then there's no communication. You can't just have a text, then there's no communication. You can't just have a reader, then there's no communication. You have to have all three, but the one who starts the conversation is this one. It's the author, all right? Is the author, okay? If I just throw alphabet soup against the wall, I almost said, uh, I almost said SpaghettiOs, but that would just say ooh, I guess. Uh, if you throw alphabet soup up against the wall and a word just happens to appear, that's not real communication. You didn't determine that. I'm not saying there can't be random letters that somehow get thrown up against the wall. What I'm saying is for actual communication, the author's the primary determiner of meaning. Okay, so now with all that in mind, what is the role of the reader? Two things. Is what? What was it? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so the reader's job is to try to interpret what the author's saying. What else do they have to be aware of? Presuppositions. Where do we find that author's meaning? Paul is dead. John is dead. Matthew's dead. Where do we go to find their meaning? The text. Okay? The text. Now, by the way, I'll say this in just a second. This is super important. God, as the author, can use language perfectly, so the text meaning is the author's meaning with the Bible. Okay? Those go together. Anyway, the text. The the text is the thing we go to look to to try to figure out what the author is saying. Right? We try to figure out what the author is saying. So now let's talk about the role of the author. I think the author is the primary determiner of meaning. Let me give you a few reasons. Number one, this is how all communication works. In all communication, I have something that I'm trying to get you to do or something I'm trying to get you to think. And so I open, again, this hole in my face, and I make weird sounds. And somehow, through the magic of language, you now do that thing or you understand what I'm saying. Language is crazy. If you start thinking about it, it'll drive you crazy. The fact how we use language, I can say something to Katie that's not even a command, and it will be taken as a command. Or we say the same thing to Judah. Hey, buddy, let's let, do you want to come play over here? That means get over here and stop what you're doing. I didn't say that. I asked him a question. But in our linguistic context, that's what that means. Okay? So how all communication works is that we're trying to figure out what the author is saying. Try to figure out what the author is saying. Okay? When you read a letter, you're trying to figure out, what is this person saying who wrote me this letter? When you read an email, you're trying to figure out, what is this person saying who sent me this email? Think about how weird this would be in the business world if you did reader response theory. Your boss says, hey, we've got a meeting at three, and make sure that report is ready. And you're like, I think by report, he means how my marriage is doing. That's what it means to me, to report on something, right? That becomes super weird. Communication couldn't take place. One of the biggest ironies is that guys that are postmodernists and guys that write about reader response theory are still trying to get their ideas across to their audience in their books so that the audience understands what they're saying as authors. Okay? All right. So how all communication works is an author is trying to get a message to someone else, and they use a medium, speech, biblical text, written language, to communicate that medium. Art. Art is a medium that can communicate these certain things. Okay? Everybody with me so far? Some of this might be basic, but you have to realize our culture has no idea what to do with any of this. Okay? 
Okay, so let's talk about why I think the author is the determinant of meaning. Number one, like I said, this is how all communication works. All communication is you're trying to figure out what somebody is saying to you when they're talking to you. You use their words or you use their writing, but you're trying to figure out what they mean. That's how all speech works. Number two, and here's the trump card. I think this is the way the Bible talks about who determines meaning. Let me give you a bunch of text. This is the trump card. If this is what the Bible says, we've got to hold it. Let me give you some examples of uh, where in the Bible people go to the author. I wrote this down on your uh, handout if you've got one. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, Paul says this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Look at verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. Paul is saying, I wrote you a letter that said, don't associate with sexually immoral people, but I now as the author am telling you what I actually meant by that. I meant those who claim to be Christians that are walking in unrepentant sin, not lost people in the world. So here in the biblical text, we see Paul clarifying, I as the author, here is what I meant, okay? You found it in the text, but I'm telling you what I meant by that text I put there, okay? Another one, Luke 8, 9 through 11. And when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, interesting, notice the disciples don't just take his parable and just keep reading it over and over and over again, hoping they get some sort of secret meaning. They go to Jesus and they say, what did you mean by this? He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God, and he goes on to explain the parable. Here you see, they're the, they're the readers, they're the listeners. They heard the parable, but they don't know what it means, so they go to Jesus and say, what does this mean? And he says, I'm going to tell you what it means. By the way, interesting caveat here. Why, according to, the, to this text, does Jesus sometimes tell parables? so that it becomes less clear and so you don't get it. I think we have a tendency to think, Jesus is a master storyteller. He tells all these parables so we get it. He says explicitly, I told this parable so nobody else would get it. You guys can get it because you're my disciples, so I'll explain it to you. But I said this so that I could say that I said it, but they didn't hear me. That's what he's saying. Okay, we're going to get into predestination and election in the sermon. (laughs) We're going to get into predestination and election in the sermon. But you see even an element like that there. Okay, Acts 8, 34. This one, I think, is a very clear thing showing the author is the primary determiner of meaning. This is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch who's out in the desert, and he's reading the scroll of Isaiah, and here's what he says. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? So he's reading about this upcoming Messiah, and notice as he's reading, he understands what he's supposed to be trying to get, which is what does Isaiah mean? What does Isaiah mean? Not just what does the text mean to me, not what just does the text have as if the text just popped into existence, As he's reading the text of Isaiah, he says, what what does God slash Isaiah mean by this? What does the author of Isaiah, who is God slash Isaiah, mean by this? That's very clear. It's interesting that he doesn't just say, what does this text mean? He says, what does the prophet mean by this? Okay? What does the prophet mean by this? Matthew 15, 15. But Peter said to him again, explain the parable to us. I don't understand. How am I going to understand? Not by checking in my heart. Not by thinking what I get a piece about, the text meaning. There are a lot of people that think that they get a piece from God about leaving their spouse. Be careful about that. Not just in the text as if the text happens apart from an author, but in the text as I look for the author's meaning. In the text as I look for the author's meaning. John 11, 11 through 13. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep, okay? So again, you see this idea where there's a misunderstanding. They just look at Jesus' words, and they don't get it. 
So they have to say, Jesus, what are you meaning by those words? What are you meaning by those words? Here's, by the way, what we're asking in all of this. Who owns the communication? Who is the owner of the communication? Is it the reader? Is it the text? Or is it the author? It's the author. It's the author. If I write a piece of literature, that is my work. The text is simply my tool I use to get it across to you. And it certainly does not belong to you as the reader. Unless I tell you it belongs to you as the reader, but then I've told you that that's my intent, thus meaning the author's the primary determiner of meaning. Okay, all right. Let's keep going. John 2, 21 again. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, this one's interesting because Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And you could just look at that and say, okay, it says temple. What do we mean by temple? What do I think temple means? Jesus has to say, the author, rather, John, has to say of Jesus, this is what Jesus means. This is what Jesus means. You'll even see marks like this in the Bible. John will say things like, I have written this so that you might know that Jesus is the Son of God, and by knowing that you might have eternal life. He even says, here is my intent. I'm the author. Let me give you my intent as the author that you would know Christ. Okay? That you would know Christ. Okay. Now, let's go over some objections to authorial intent, uh, and then we will have a big chance to answer questions. Okay? Let's go to some objections to authorial intent. So some people say, Zach, I think that's ridiculous. I don't think the author determines the meaning. And these are the reasons that they give. Number one, we cannot know the thoughts in the author's mind. Number one, we cannot know the thoughts in the author's mind. Okay, so they'll say, Zach, the author can't be the primary determiner of meaning. That's psychological hermeneutics. How can we understand the thoughts that are in Paul's mind? And here's the response to that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not saying we can know everything in Paul's mind. As Paul is uh, having his amanuensis write Romans, he might be thinking, man, I'm really hungry. I could use a falafel right now. I wonder how the church in Corinth is doing. Man, that guy caused me so much trouble, that silversmith. I mean, he could be thinking a thousand different things. I wonder if it's going to rain tomorrow. No, this is the Middle East. It's super hot here. I mean, he could be thinking all kinds of things. No, I'm not trying to get everything that's in his mind. I'm trying to get the things in his mind that he's used the text to tell me. Make sense? When I write a letter to Katie, she doesn't know everything in my mind when I'm writing that letter. Whether I'm hungry, whether I'm sad. I'm typically sad, so she might know that whether or not what the weather's like, whatever it is. But she can know what's in my mind for that primary thing that I'm trying to get her to understand, which is in the text, right? The problem with this objection is it forgets that we actually have a text which is a portal into the intent of the author, okay? So we're not saying we know everything going on in their mind. We don't have to know that. What I can know that's going on in their mind is what they're trying to tell me. When you're communicating with somebody, there is something going on in your mind that you're trying to tell other people about. That's the thing we're saying that you can get. So I don't know everything Paul's thinking, but I do know what he's thinking about Christ and Romans. I don't know everything that Paul's thinking, but I do know what he's thinking of elections and election in Romans 9 or something like this, okay? Number two, the author's culture is too far removed from ours. The author's culture is too far removed from ours. So what some people will say is you can't get to the meaning of the author because their culture is too far removed from your own. It just wouldn't make sense, Okay? The response to this is that though cultures are different, there are some things that essentially that make us human. How can the Bible, which is written to a different culture in different languages thousands of years ago, apply to us today? And it's because there is a continuity in the human experience. Language has a continuity. So though Paul might think differently than me about maybe politics, that doesn't mean that I can't figure out what he does think about politics. Or though Paul might think differently than I would typically think about salvation, that doesn't mean that there's such a cultural gap that I can't figure out what he means. In fact, part of what we do as good Bible students is we try to understand the culture going on in the time that the text is written so that we can bridge that cultural gap. 
So just because there's a bit of a cultural gap, that doesn't mean we can't get the main thing that's being said, and it doesn't mean we can't bridge that cultural gap. This is how we even do missions. How do we get a message of the gospel to a tribe in Africa that's never heard it before? Well, apparently, God has wired the world in such a way to where there is enough of a cultural similarity between humans to where we can understand basic things, to where we can understand basic things, okay? Number three, to seek the author's intended meaning is arrogant or irrelevant to our modern-day culture, okay? You'll get this objection. Zach, if you're looking for Paul's meaning or John's meaning or Luke's meaning or something like that, that's so arrogant. How could you think that you could possibly get the meaning of the author. And I think to myself, no, 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 no. What's arrogant is you thinking that you can't so that you can build your own truth system so that now you can be the primary determiner of meaning. That's what arrogant is. Number two, I just had to figure out what you meant by what you said in your objection. I can find out what other people mean. Okay, let me give you an example. I'll mention the Constitution at the end. Okay? I live, what, 250-ish years removed from the founding fathers uh, who wrote the Constitution, okay? I don't know everything going on in their head. I don't know everything about their culture. What is something that I could do to figure out what they mean? Who knows? What is a way that I could figure out whether or not they mean by this certain phrase in the Constitution? Am I just stuck? And I just say, yeah, there's 250 years. There's no way humans can communicate over 250 years in different cultures. What are some things I could do to figure out what that means? Yes! Read the thousand other things they wrote to figure out when they say liberty, what do they mean? When they say freedom, what do they mean? When they say equality, what do they mean? I have to figure it out by using their text. That's what we do when we come to the Bible. I'm not just saying, here's Paul writing one sentence. I'm reading everything else Paul wrote, and I'm reading what the rest of the Bible says about it, and I'm reading other second temple Jewish literature to figure out what Jews around that time meant. So there's not such a gap to where we can't get a meaning We can read other sources to know what they mean, which, by the way, when you said we read other sources, you're going back to authorial intent. I want to see what other authors have written elsewhere to know what they mean here. There's no reason to read other sources if it's just the text. It's just the text, okay? Number four, here's an objection, but Zach, if the author is the primary determiner of meaning, that would mean the author could use words in a way they've never been used before. Yes, and they do. When Jesus says, this is my temple, talking about his body, he's now used temple in a way that it's not been used before. When Paul calls the church the Israel of God in Galatians, he's now using the term Israel in a different way than it's been used before, okay? So every time, in fact, a new word comes into existence in any language, somebody has to use it that way the first time, right? Any new word has to be used the first time. How do we know what the author means by that word? They give it context, Jesus says, this is my temple. The author of the text says, he's talking about the temple of his body. So you can use words in a way that they've never been used before. You just have to then clarify when you're doing that. You have to give enough context so that people know what you're saying, so that people know what you're saying. Lastly, lastly, what about when an author misuses words? What about when an author misuses words? So anybody in here ever been in an argument with their spouse? What happens there is a breakdown in communication, right? You're meaning to intend something, and sometimes the words don't come out right. Let me give you an example that I used. I used this when I was talking to our youth. There was a time I came home, and Katie was looking both frowny and grumpy. And I combined those words, and I said, you're looking kind of frumpy. (laughs) Not knowing to me that frumpy meant something like unkempt, right? And like uh, homely or something. I meant frowny and grumpy. Do you think that went well? No. I didn't intend that. I said, baby, 
The author determines the meaning. Ask me what I meant by that. Okay? But we, as humans, can misuse words. We as humans can misuse words. Okay? We can mean something and accidentally not use the right words. Let me say this, though, first. Could that ever happen with the Bible? No, because God uses words perfectly. So the biggest objection against the author determining the meaning is sometimes an author means something but doesn't use the right words to say it. That's never the case with God. God uses language perfectly. When it comes to reading the Bible, these two are inseparably linked. These two are inseparably linked. With other forms of non-inerrant communication, normal human language, and other things, these things can be disjointed. Let me give you an example. Let's say... I'm going to write a sentence on the board. I don't, sorry for my terrible handwriting as always, I don't never want to do that. I don't never want to do that, okay? If, let's say I'm talking to just a good old country guy, and I'm out in Alabama, and I say, hey, man, you want to go do this thing? And he says, man, I don't ever want to do that. Do I then say, you know what? He's used a double negative, which is actually a positive, so he's quite emphatic that he does want to do it. No? Or yes? No, that's not how language works. We have to be careful, and I'm a big grammarian syntax guy. I'm really big on this. We have to be careful because language happens within a culture. Language happens within a culture, okay? So we always have to understand the content of what's being spoken. Now, you don't have a case of this in the Bible. God uses language perfectly. If there's a double negative, well, Greek's different. A double negative is actually a really emphatic no in Greek. But anyway, If you have some sort of grammatical thing in the Bible, it absolutely matters because God uses the text perfectly. But outside of the Bible, we can intend something as an author and we can missay it, okay? And we can missay it. So we have to keep these kind of things in mind. But don't worry about this. This is not a problem with the Bible. This is only a problem with every other piece of human literature, okay? So be encouraged. Be encouraged. Okay. Now, I want to mention one thing here real quick. Sorry, I keep touching that. One more thing here real quick. Let me tell you why this lesson that we're talking about today is so important just as Christians. So one of the big things I'm passionate about is making sure people have a Christian worldview. Not just that they're Christians in church, but they're Christians in their business and Christians in their home and Christians in the way they think about ethics and Christians in the way they think about society and all these other kind of things, okay? So I want to do this. Now, let me be really clear here what I don't want to do. I don't want this to turn into any sort of political activism stuff. That's not what I'm trying to push. But I want you to let you know why this discussion we're having today does play into other realms of society. One of the big ones you are seeing is when it comes to how to interpret the Constitution. How to interpret the Constitution. What we're doing there is we are taking these same kind of rules and you have people that are making cases on different sides. An originalist is someone who's saying we should try to figure out what the original authors intend by this document. That's an author-based hermeneutic. That's an author-oriented hermeneutic. For others that would see the Constitution as a living document, what they're saying is that the reader is the primary determiner of meaning. Forget the fact that the founding father, so, so let's, I mean, if you use abortion, use gay marriage, use any of those things, is that what the original authors intend at all? No. How do we know? Because we can read their other writings, okay? We can read their other writings. Gay marriage is not on the radar for a Thomas Jefferson or something like this, Okay? But, so that's if you hold an author-oriented hermeneutic, if you hold a reader response theory, 
a reader, uh, the idea that the reader is the primary determinant of meaning, now you can say that it does. You can say, if the Constitution protects life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you're denying me my pursuit of happiness and pursuing whatever X, Y, Z thing because you're now going against the Constitution. You're now going against the Constitution, okay? So this is a Christian way to read all documents, not just the Bible. Now, here's where you have to be careful. When the Constitution says all men are created equal, what does it mean? What does it mean? What does all people mean to them? How do we know what it means by how it's implemented? So there's some debate here, okay? The founding fathers, by the way, don't all agree on this. They have some differing views on slavery. They have some differing views on race. They have some differing views there. Most of them probably mean something like white land-owning males when they say all men are created equal. How do we know that? Because women don't gain the right to vote till later. Black people don't gain the right to vote till later, these kind of things. So what you can do is this. If you want to say this is probably what they originally intended, but we want to change or amend the Constitution, that's what you do. You can amend and change the Constitution. What you can't do is act like you found a new meaning in there that it doesn't originally intend, okay? So what we would do is we would say, yeah, all men should include all men, and so women are granted the right to vote, black people are granted the right to vote, and those amendments are added to the Constitution. What's shady and, uh, you know, not, not really above board and being honest is when you start interpreting it in a way that it's never been meant instead of actually changing it. If you actually change it, you've got to put your cards on the table and say, this is what we're changing it to. The other way you can come up with any interpretation you want to because of your reader response theory. What does it mean to us? Paul, he's antiquated. He's chauvinistic. That's 2,000 years ago in a Roman-dominated society. What do we as 21st century Westerners mean by marriage, gender roles, whatever? Okay. Now, that is not meant... We, so, so let me just tell you something I'm, I'm really frustrated at about the church over the last 70 years. The way that we change the world is by being the church. It's not by trying to get a better Caesar. The way we change the world is by preaching the gospel and teaching the Bible and loving people and these kind of things. Okay? Now, are individual Christians called to political action? Political action? Sure. You're a, you're a member of a democratic society, so you have a democratic republic, so you do that. But that's not our primary thrust. Our primary thrust is by teaching people about the Scriptures, okay? So I'm not trying to make a call for some sort of political activism. My call for all of you is to be great disciples of Jesus. The only reason I'm even mentioning this is because I'm trying to let us see that this idea of the author being the primary determiner of meaning plays into more things in our society than just the Bible. That's all I'm trying to make, okay? I'm using the Constitution thing as an example, not trying to push some agenda, to say how you interpret documents matters. How you interpret documents matters. Is that fair? Does everybody know what I'm doing and what I'm not doing? Okay, nobody get your pitchforks or flags. Get your Bibles, okay? That's what we're doing. All right, Jeffrey, would you come up here? Since you understand what I'm saying as the author and you're listening to my words as the reader and interpreting it by minimizing your presuppositions, would you come up here and we'll answer some questions about who determines the meaning of the text?